You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 70, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. It's good to be talking with you all again after a bit of a gap. Uh, I had a lot on my plate for the past few weeks. Uh, You're probably thinking that an old retired guy ought to have plenty of free time, and uh, usually that's true enough, but uh, I recently started doing some half-time consulting work for my old department at the university, and uh, be working there for just a few months or so. You know, it's just a temporary thing. I have no desire to rekindle a career, so... Uh, thanks for your uh, patience while I worked all that out and uh, got started with that. And as always, I want to say thank you to all of the show's supporters. You know, there are costs associated with running any entertainment channel, and I'm grateful to all of you for keeping this little boat afloat. And if you're out there listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, it's easy to do. And you can support the show for as little as $3 a month. And you can do that via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. You just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details on that. So I haven't done a panel discussion show in a while, and I kind of like those where we talk to a few people about one subject or another. So I thought I would put together a program about herping in my home state. So Jeremy Schumacher and Justin Michaels returned to the microphone for this, and very happy that Joey Cavateo agreed to join us. So let's get to the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Tonight, I have another panel discussion, and uh, I've got uh, three other uh, folks on the line with me tonight. And uh, starting uh, at the screen top above me is uh, Jeremy Schumacher. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the show. And up at screen top right, I have Joey Cavateo. Welcome to the show, Joey. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. And then over on my right, I have Justin Michaels. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Jeremy and Justin, last time we were all talking, it was about uh, uh, crawfish frogs uh, down in the southern portions of Illinois. And uh, so this is uh, an a per panel discussion, if you will, about uh, about the state we live in, herping in Illinois, and uh, so we add uh, Joey on, who's live who lives up in the I would say the Chicago suburbs. Where exactly do you live? Don't give us your address. <laughs> I live about forty miles west of Chicago. Okay, so you would call that the the, the it, suburbs, yeah, right? the western suburbs, correct? Okay, very good. I think the uh, best place to kind of start with is one of the. It's kind of a, a funny thing we people get in their cars and they drive to other states. They go to Texas and they go to Florida or they fly to Arizona because those are the hotspots. Um, but uh, it, we, we get that a little bit in Illinois too. And we'll talk about that uh, as we go along a little further, but uh, it, Illinois is one of those States that uh, is, is uh, you know, it's kind of a flyover state for, for many herpers. Uh, and um, well, we have some really interesting things going on in the state. And I thought we'd talk about them a little bit. Now I made some notes about for the, I made some notes for the show. 
<clears throat> because uh, I think there's, you know, Illinois has, there's some factoids that have to get thrown in there. And I don't know if uh, anyone else has, has looked in, into this, but uh, our state is 400 miles long, um, which, which is quite impressive. I don't know if it's the longest state. Maybe Minnesota's longer. I don't know. Maybe California's longer, but 400 miles is nothing to sneeze at. And it's also 200 miles wide at, at its widest. Uh, so there, there's a, it's, it's a fair chunk of real estate and there's a lot going on in the state. And of course the state, uh, over those 400 miles, uh, north to south, there's quite a bit of ch- uh, change in terms of, uh, uh, geography, biogeography, uh, remaining habitat and things like that. So, well, I mean, uh, down here in Southern Illinois, uh, within, a an hour drive in any direction, I can hit five different, uh, ecotypes. So, uh, you talk about sudden change. You got to get through about the first 300 miles of Illinois, and then every 50 miles it changes through the rest of the state. Yeah, there's quite a bit more going on in the southern portion as opposed to anyway, where Justin and I live. We live um, what we would call um, uh, glacial moraine areas, and, and Justin's over kind of an almost a driftless area, close to a driftless area over there. Uh, but the, you have a lot of different uh, provinces, uh, geophysical provinces going on. And of course, up, up where Joey lives, it's it's kind of all uh, what's left after the, the last glacier passed over. Is that fair to yeah, say? Yeah, um, I think uh, the best way to describe specifically the Chicago region, which is where I, I live and where I do the majority of my herping, is that, you know, you've got the the eastern forests sort of meeting the the western prairies and so you've got this conglomeration of really unique habitat types you know you've got you know everyone knows that illinois is the prairie state but uh you know obviously that's not the case throughout much of the state um chicago area has got everything from black soil and sand prairies uh, wet prairies dolomite gravel gravel hill prairies um, sand and oak savannas open woodlands all different types of forests, including flatwoods, uh, beach dunes along the lake, Lake Michigan. Uh, we've got a number of different wetlands, such as marshes, bogs, fens. We've got ponds and lakes and streams of all different kinds of classes. And I think probably um, most unexpectedly, people would might, might be surprised at how much man-made habitat we've got as far as railroad corridors, um, reclaimed quarries, and um, even urban brownfields which have um, sort of uh, recently been discovered to contain quite a high herp diversity. So, yeah, I, I think the problem with Illinois is a lot of people drive through the state, right? They take, you know, I-57 across the state and they're like, well, there's nothing to do because it's all farmland or they do the same thing with Indiana or Iowa. But you really got to get off those interstates and you got to kind of get to little pockets and you'd be surprised at uh, the incredible habitats and ecosystems you can find. And I think there, there's also some, you know, if you if you take again where where Jeremy lives down in the south, there is much more land that's of open and available to the general public than up by yes. you, um, because obviously Chicago is sort of s- sprawled across the northern, northeastern corner of the state like a big octopus, a uh, big concrete octopus. But there are still places you can go and find those those little niche the fens and bogs and, and, uh, prairies and uh, dolomite prairies. So uh, can you explain to me what, you know, I've heard that dolomite prairie thing and I'm not really familiar with that. Can you explain what that is and 
What kind of herbs do you find in a dolomite prairie? So essentially a dolomite prairie is a prairie where the dolomite uh, bedrock is very close to the surface. In fact, oftentimes it's on the surface. You'd call that dolomite pavement. And so you're essentially in a really, really thin soil type of habitat. Um, you get a lot of short prairie type plants. Um, and you might find species that you would normally associate with like a sand prairie. Um, you get racers, milk snakes. Um, oddly enough, there's one of the more uh, popular dolomite prairies up in uh, the Northeast Illinois it has a really odd population of queen snakes. So it's habitat you would not associate. When you think of queen snakes, you think of the, uh, the typical, you know, the, the rocky bottom, the cobble bottom streams and things like that. But uh, yeah, but there's a really unique uh, um, dolomite prairie up near, uh, not too far from me, where you can find queen snakes and it looks nothing like their classic habitat. So it's sort of a, a mix. You never really know what you're going to find in a place like that. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess that's like, I should have asked this question of somebody before now. I've only lived in the state for uh, 30 something years, but uh, that that's not a feature down here, at least in the middle part of the state. Uh, and, and I think um, as far as the middle goes, I, I live in the North or the uh, East central Illinois and a couple of um, glaciers have come roaring through here over time. Um, most recently the Illinois glacier and uh, which uh, stopped uh, didn't go all the way down the state. It stopped uh, at some point, at some point, two thirds of the way down the state. And then before that, the uh, Wisconsinian, oh my gosh, um, I'm sorry. The uh, Wisconsinian was the most recent yeah. one. I'm sorry. And then the Illinoisan was the one that was like 300,000 years ago and uh, went all the way, nearly down to the bottom near, I think it stopped somewhere around it Carbondale. At, uh, Creel Springs, Illinois. Okay. So yeah, there we go. And uh, which I assume is around that area yeah, somewhere you know, north uh, of the Shawnee Hills. If you know where Hills. Lake of Egypt is, uh, if you're looking at a map, uh, follow uh, 57 down until uh, you hit around Mount Vernon and look for a, a nice big lake just south. Uh, that's Lake of Egypt. Uh, yeah, that's about where the glaciers stopped moving. And there gets some really drastic topography changes really quick right after that spot. And And I might add that the northwestern portion of Illinois remains unglaciated. Um, quite a unique area up there, too. Yeah, they call that the the driftless, the driftless area. area, which which goes up into Wisconsin, I think. And and then over by Justin, he's got uh, uh, sand prairie. He lives along the Illinois River, so you've got you know sand prairies, uh, and uh, well, you've got all kinds of habitat over there, don't you? Yeah, we've got sand prairies. We've got upland forest, um, the river valley, and even wetlands all around me. And as, as far as uh, the herpetofauna of the state, uh, I was looking it up and I wasn't quite sure what the number was. Of the, the I don't have the latest field guide. We actually have a new field guide for the state out, which I, I don't have yet. Uh, bad, bad, Mike. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the uh, the previous uh, one lists 102 species of amphibians and reptiles, uh, which I guess is a respectable number. And I think there's uh, uh, about 25 species that occur statewide and we can all kind of guess what those are, the alligator snapping turtle and the bullfrog and the green frog and thing, you know, Eastern garter snake and things like that. But uh, we also have some specialty items uh, that uh, occur in small areas. And of course, I think you can all correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we only have one endemic herp. That only we own? Maybe the Illinois, not the Illinois chorus frog. No. 
It's the unisexual ambistoma. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, formerly known as uh, ambistoma platineum. Platineum, platineum, which is over by me. So, yeah, um, it's not too far. It's the only thing I can really, my only real claim to fame over here is uh, is ambistoma platineum. As I said, the glacier kind of came through this area quite a bit. Uh, it's very flat. Uh, it was great for agriculture. It took a lot of various wet prairies and dry prairies and uh, uh, converted them all into ag and of course you know i often refer to where i live as the great corn desert there's just not much around here herp habitat wise just a few pockets of things here and there you can go to this park or that park and and find some things but you get the common things you know you get the painted turtles and snapping turtles and uh bullfrogs and things like that so uh we we do still retain those those common things and they 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 have their own little niches you know they uh, farm fields have a lot of drainage dishes around here. So the drainage dishes provide habitat for a lot of those creatures too. And I assume that's the same thing elsewhere in the state. So, yeah, up, up in the Northeastern Illinois, as you mentioned, Mike, it's very fragmented. You know, we don't have the same opportunities as, uh, Jeremy down South in Southern Illinois, where I've also spent quite a bit of time and I'm a little bit envious because you've got relatively vast stretches of, of woodlands and things like that. And we've got some really interesting habitat, but uh, we're very fragmented. So we do have a lot of common species up here as well. Um, but yeah, some of the rare species are, are really restricted to, you know, maybe in some cases, one or two areas. So they, they may be, you know, um, listed in the state but they may only literally occur in one or, or two or three small populations or small areas. So, well, give me an example of, of some of those herbs. I'm going to guess like a smooth green snake might be one. Um, smooth green snake is definitely on the downward trend, but um, there are some areas, um, particularly around me in DuPage County, um, where you can still find them in, in fairly good numbers. Um, I'm referring more or less to things like spotted turtles. Um, oh. you know, Graham's crayfish snakes in the area are pretty rare. Kirtland snakes, cricket frogs in Northern Illinois, uh, virtually disappeared in the 1970s. Uh, in some areas they are making a comeback they're, they're Actually, it's funny because in Northern Illinois, there were a few little pockets where they sort of stayed, you know, during their, uh, ex you know, their local extinctions, um, they were, they're still found in some areas and they're like little strongholds. I would refer to them as strongholds. Uh, and I think that there's some evidence that they're using things like the Illinois and Michigan Canal as sort of a, a green uh, or a corridor, uh, aquatic corridor to make their way into other areas and, you know, starting to re-enter Cook County um, and things like that. But yeah, we, you know, there are certainly a number of species that, um, you can you you consider them you know part of the state's herpetofauna, but they're not doing very well. And I don't think uh, you were talking about spotted turtles. I don't think they ever really did well. Uh, there weren't great populations of them. There were they occurred. Uh, I think the Chicago area itself uh, before it was uh, uh, be, you know became what it is today. Uh, there were populations of them here and there, and it was uh, we get them of course out in the in, kind of goes around the lake there in the bottom of the lake but we only have i think one place this is kind of a common theme for illinois we have one place where they're left yeah yeah and, and they're a peripheral species i think probably to begin with i don't think they were ever very common in the chicago region even prehistorically right 
so that doesn't help, you know, when you've got uh, in, in the particular region they're found in, there's a lot of industry. And so that didn't help. But uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely one of those peripheral species that, uh, you know, doesn't help when, uh, when you've got mass amounts of, of industry, you know, uh, surrounding them. Yeah. And I think Kirtland snake is another one. Uh, and of course, those are those are probably always spotty. They were always um, restricted to a certain really wet, swampy habitat. Sure. Uh, of course, most of that was drained away, um, and they seem to have uh, they're hanging on, but they've they've seemed to um, hang on around uh, man-made lakes and things like that, man-made ponds in the state. And there's probably. Uh, of more of them than we know of, probably some on private land. Probably a lot of the borrow pits that are along the highway may have populations of crayfish snakes, or uh, I'm sorry, of uh, Kirtland snakes along them. But uh, certainly, that's that's a snake that's it's around, but it's not around like it used to be. So, right. The kind of uh, cool thing about where I'm at is uh, most of the, most of the stuff just to the north of me is very common. A lot of stuff just to the south of me is very common. And I, I kind of get to live in this like intergrade zone uh, where north is reaching its very limits, but south is reaching its very limits. So there's this like really big mix of species, but just off to the either north or south, they're dirt common. But in my area, you kind of have to search for them. Uh, one of them is just the common garter snake. Uh, if you ask anybody at Snake Road, if you're walking down there and you see a garter snake, everybody kind of flips out. They're like, oh, <laughs> how, what, how many is this for you now? Like we keep a running total of how many uh, eastern garter snakes we see at Snake Road. Uh, but it's, it's just not a snake that I encounter very often, whereas I'm like uh, tripping over copperheads. You know, it's it's kind of this weird dichotomy of, yeah, it's super common in the entire state, but it just it's fading out. That gradient effect really hits southern Illinois. So, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of noticed that I've, I've found en- enough of them over the years down there, but I won't say that, that I see them on every trip. That's for sure. Kind of a, oh, my gosh, look, hey, it's an eastern garter snake. What do you know? Uh, but if you go, like you say, if you go elsewhere in the state either over by Justin or up by, even up by me and uh, certainly up by Joey still, there's still good populations think, uh, of Eastern garters. Another snakes, one so. that comes to mind really quick is the uh, tiger salamander. Uh, you know, we think of the tiger salamanders as prairie species, but I don't have any prairie down here. So uh, they're using hardwood forests. Uh, maybe uh, have been converted into ag fields in the past and regrown. Uh, but uh, it's just, Whenever you see one, it's it's just such a treat. Uh, whereas you know it, it rains in central Illinois, and there's 400 tiger salamanders crossing the road. Yeah, I, th- I think the even up even uh, Justin gets them over by him. I know I've been over there with him a number of times, and we find the uh, found tigers earlier this year actually over there. And I'm sure um, Joey gets them up around his area too. Yeah, yeah, the tigers up by me are I would call I'd consider them a generalist. You know, they're like, like, like Jeremy said, they're often referred to as like a prairie species, but I mean, they're, they're all over the suburbs. Um, I found that once you get out of the incorporated areas, you know, when you, when you, when you're out of the areas where you've got storm drains and storm sewers and things like that, then you're going to start seeing them where there's more or less like ditches and, and wetter ground and things like that, because, uh, you know, obviously they, they, they fall victim. Like where I live, I live in a, in the very cusp of an incorporated area i never see them but you 
go half a mile west and they're all over the place. Uh, and people get them in their window wells all the time and they get them in their dry, you know, the first rains of the spring that you get, you get, uh, you know, tiger salamanders in your driveways and your in the streets and the, in the gutters and they're everywhere. It's, un- it's unbelievable. So they, they depend, they, as soon as you start channeling water away and, uh, uh, draining the ground, they just, that's what I found. I haven't, you know, researched it. I just realized when I put two and two together, I'm like, well, where have I seen tiger salamanders in good numbers? It's always in a place where it just has not been, you know, there have not been sewers put in everywhere. Um, a lot of unincorporated areas essentially. Uh, and, and sometimes they're, they're thick out there in places like that. I mean, like I said, just about a half a mile West of me, it, you, you can't drive down a road in the springtime without running over a few of them. Is that a fun thing to do at night in the spring is to go out and uh, look for it, it is. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's quite like how it was when I, I read, I read accounts from the 1960s and seventies. And it, it seems to me that back then there were a lot more salamanders. I I've, I've read about accounts, uh, you know, stating that the road was just good, you know, just gush, just crushed salamander goo, you know, you slip and slide all over the place. It's not quite like that anymore. I don't think we quite, we don't have yeah. that quite that, uh, density. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's still a good time to get out, uh, in March and, uh, look for not just salamanders, but you'll see, you know, even bullfrogs will, will emerge early in March. Uh, we get all the larger frogs, you know, the cricket and the, um, chorus frogs and things like that. Um, so nothing quite like Southern Illinois, but it's still, it's still pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention, and you probably all heard me brag about this, but I, I, I have found a tiger salamander on snake road. Oh, nice. But just one. Uh, one time. I think I may have only seen one on the north side once. On on the road? or Well, uh, near Pie Rock. I think uh, I saw mm. one with Marty. I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure we saw one yeah, there once. Yeah, there's that big little swampy area right there in front of that rock, too. Yeah, near the swampy area where what we call Pie Rock at the north side, if anybody's been there. It's a pie-shaped rock. I've, I've yet to see uh, any salamander though it's not a common one there so you guys got me beat (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i saw i it was after like three three days of heavy rains you know i mean really really heavy rains back in the late 90s and this thing was crawling up the road at night in the middle of the, of the rain um just past the spring on the north side of the road north end of the road interesting little that's the only time that we see them, though. For me, as a little kid, uh, somehow we had learned that if you just dug a hole and let it fill up with rain, it would be packed, teeming with them. And we did that all the time. I, mean, I remember it being like a just before Halloween kind of thing would be the heaviest activity, it seems like, in my memories as a kid. Um, but you can take that to spring with cool, cool nights as well and still get the movement with heavy rain. And the window well thing seems to be very common. That seems to be a common thing people end up with. Oh, for toads and everything, too. Toads and salamanders and things. So that's just interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, um, one of the other things that shows up in the southern end of the state and it shows up over by Justin's neck of the woods are the Illinois chorus frogs, um, which are kind of a species tied to sand, uh, sandy soils. uh, And... um, Justin and I have been out over in his neck of the woods for them a number of times and heard him calling and uh, down with Jeremy too. And then uh, gone down to Southern Illinois and got them down there as well. Uh, areas with sandy soil around. 
the southern counties. So I've got some very anecdotal evidence on them. Um, as you know, Mike, I, I got kind of ridiculous, got scolded by my wife. I would stay out until they stopped calling like 11, 12, 13 nights in a row and 32 Fahrenheit air temperatures when they always quit. So 32, 33, you'd have, you'd, you'd go from, you know, hundred to 50 to 10 to six to one. And then eventually he would quit at about 32, 33. So it seemed like high, high to mid forties was really peak performance for them. And then it falls off quickly as the, as the midnight hour approaches, but that was just my own anecdotal, whatever for the young people out there looking for chorus frogs. If it's, if it's low thirties, don't bother. <laughs> Wait for the forties. There are other reasons not to bother if it's low thirties. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't really have to worry about the temp as much. Uh, Cause usually by the time they start, the, the weather is usually holding in the forties anyways. It's the rainfall. Uh, if it's actively uh, raining, at least a drizzle, they'll be calling in full choruses. But as the rain stops, you can just, uh, it's like the sound just stops with the rain too. So I'll be out, you know, my, and the hip waders uh, going out, uh, trying to triangulate one of these frogs. And as the rain stops, it gets really easy because there's only one or two of them calling anymore. But as soon as the rain picks back up, the, the full chorus starts booming again. So I don't think the temperature thing, uh, it might spur them on, but uh, we don't have that drastic shift in temperature that uh, central Illinois does around that time. They, they basically start my year uh, herping and they come out. They're the first, really the first thing to be out and for me to look for. Maybe chorus frogs are out as well, but it's still cold nights. And then, of course, they don't call for very long. Um, a few weeks at best, and then I don't really see them anymore here. I don't hear them anymore anyway. And then other things pick up after yeah, that. I get like a, about a, a month's worth of window, but out of that is about two weeks of uh, surefire, and then it just it drifts off very slowly. But if the rains come in, it, it picks right back up. Well, I think it's interesting, too. I mean, by the time you're – everybody heads south because uh, – it's it's not too bad to be out when it's raining and in, in the 40s. Um, but there's such a temperature difference between, you know, where you live and where Joey lives, <laughs> you know, that it's much, you know, I don't know how many weeks later before Joey gets those kinds of temperatures. I, it takes a while. The one year I was posting pictures of stuff and you guys were under like 18 inches of snow or something like that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm, I'm in like yeah. a t-shirt and shorts, uh, you know, out in the rain playing, looking for stuff and yeah, rub it in. <laughs> you were, you were at least three weeks, yeah, three I weeks ahead of us I this year. About not three four. to four weeks. It's in, in some seasonal shifts that we can be ahead. Uh, we get a lot of actual, uh, uh, golf, uh, moisture systems that hit Southern Illinois. So we get a lot of the, the warm air from the Gulf of Mexico actually. And I think that keeps us just a, a little warmer sometimes. It, I think it also has something to do with the species because, um, you know, I'm not sure how they're delineating all the different chorus frogs right now. It seems to be up in the air, but we get up here like the boreal chorus frog, um, what we used to refer to as the Western chorus frog. And, um, you know, They'll start whether or not it rains. Um, I feel like the last few years we haven't really have a, had not, we haven't really had a lot of rain in the springtime. Um, it's very sporadic, and so they'll 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 get impatient and they'll just start calling. 
but the temperatures really need to be like in the in the 40s or low 50s at night and so sometimes it can take a while you'll get sporadic um choruses in the in march but they really ramp up in april and may and they'll last oftentimes into june i mean they're one of the longest calling frog species we've got in our region i can't think of anything else that calls for that long didn't you also just post um uh some pictures of some out that were active out on the road yeah we yeah, we, we, we had a lot of rain um, recently and, you know, I, I can't explain it. We, I mean, obviously we've had rain in the past and I walk outside all the time at night uh, in my own neighborhood here. Um, and I see, I do get frogs uh, and it's always exciting to me. I never, I never ever get sick and tired of seeing toads and chorus frogs and green frogs. You know, uh, it's just, especially considering that I live in, in, a, in a suburban area, it's, it's always exciting to me to see that. Um, but for some reason, yeah, we, we, we really got a lot of chorus frogs this week after one rain. And then the following night we had rain during the afternoon and that brought out a, a more eclectic variety. We got, uh, I had, I said toads climbing trees, which is very odd. Uh, we had, um, lots of, lots of, uh, leopard frogs, uh, Northern leopard frogs. Um, so it, yeah, typically during the summertime, we will get those frogs during rains, but yeah, it, we had, it was a treat this past week. We had, uh, quite a bit more than usual for, for whatever reason. Do you have the, the gray tree frogs up there with you uh, around your place? Uh, too? Yeah, we do get the gray tree frogs, um, uh, copes and the, you know, the Eastern gray tree frogs. Uh, in, in my immediate vicinity, there are, there's a small population. Now I live right on a 700 acre forest preserve. It's a, it's a wetland, uh, sort of a prairie and a, and a wet prairie and wetlands with, with a fen uh, right in the back of my house. So, Luckily, I, I get a lot of that. Um, and so we do have uh, a small population of gray tree frogs. But like I said, you go out west a little bit more and they're just they're just roaring at night in, in the, around May. Um, they're just their numbers are so high. It, it's incredible. And it's all it's all mm. suburban areas. These are these are all areas where, you know, they'll be breeding in roadside ditches and, uh, you know, even, um, you know, ornamental ponds on people's properties and things like that. Small areas you wouldn't even, con- you wouldn't normally consider as being a, a you know, area for fro- for egg deposition or breeding, but uh, they'll, they'll, they'll take advantage of pretty much anything they can. Yeah. I'm thinking, uh, you know, we, um, Justin and I went out to see our friend, uh, Colonel Whalen, uh, out at his place out, out in, uh, <laughs> out in the hinterlands, uh, near Danville. Uh, and, uh, he has the gray tree frogs out there, but he doesn't really have a pond like a permanent water fixture there. There's, there's, it's um, you know. firmly corn desert and uh, they were calling from outbuildings and trees and s- sounding off. It was humid. Yeah. I think he gets a, he gets a, like a spring water uh, ponds in the field before the, you know, before they get in the plant. Uh, there, there's some low areas that, that fill up with water, but it doesn't have like a, like a wetland. Out a there. a so few hundred feet off. I think there's a low depression area in the middle of those fields. Um, but I don't know how permanently wet it stays. Yeah, but you know, by by June it's got corn in it. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting that these frogs maybe they're using a creek. I don't know, but they, you know, they're obviously the uh, gray tree frogs. You know, can do well by getting you know coming down to pick up some dew and things like that. You know, obviously they're found around wetlands too, but they they seem to do well without them as well, which is kind of interesting. I think high dew point saves their lives out there. Uh, just uh, down in Carbondale, where I live, uh, just the urban area, like gray tree frogs, you know, pick any night that's got a little humidity in the air. They're calling from the build, like, you know, the brick buildings. 
you know, sure, yeah, there's water almost anywhere you go around southern Illinois, but I don't actually ever find them near water. I find them, you know, in the urban areas, in, in the tr- they're using tree cavities. They're using uh, my birdhouse, for example, became a, uh, a great tree frog home for a while. Uh, but if I go over to the water, the only time they're using that is when they're breeding. Uh, outside of that, I don't hear them calling from the water's edge. They're using like willow uh, clumps and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, during breeding time, I, it's hard to sleep at night. But outside of that, they're they're constantly calling, but they're just nowhere near water. Um, my coworker just this week, uh, he lives in Chicago. In fact, he lives not far at all from where I grew up in Chicago. Texted me a picture of a gray tree frog that he found on his uh, outdoor patio set. He just says, hey, hey, Joe, what's this? I'm like, that's a gray tree frog. Where are you? He says, I'm at my house. <laughs> now, you have to understand, this is a very typical urban environment. And I had to take a glance because it's been five years since I've lived in Chicago. So I had to make sure that there was, no, in fact, no pond or anything like that around there. Um, and there is nothing. I, I'm blown away. I, it, I, I'm not even really convinced that it's a naturally occurring animal because – I mean, it, it is about as urban as you can imagine. Um, you know, then you get into the realm of like, well, was it introduced through like a plant or something like that? But if it is a naturally occurring animal, it's just a testament to how how incredible these animals are and how much they can travel, I suppose, because had have come from quite a way um, if it you know to get from a from a breeding area at the very least. Well, I think a sticky frog like that probably gets around a lot on vehicles. That's true. Oh, sure. You know, um, no doubt. I think maybe maybe that that happens quite a bit. Um, I have a friend here in town, uh, my buddy Hank, and he uh, has a pond in his backyard, and we live in you know in Champaign, the city of Champaign, and I you know built a a pond in his backyard and put some goldfish in it, and then one day there's a bullfrog there, um, and in the heart you know, of the bullf- city. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's no lakes or ponds or anything around where Hank lives, and you know, and it's not a, it's not the sticky frog that might take a ride on your Chevy. <laughs> uh, so how did that bullfrog get there? And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a baby a little one. It was, uh, you know, fairly good sized bullfrog. So mm-hmm. I, how does that work? I, it's sort of a mystery to me. But yeah. Speaking of backyard herps, uh, my other claim to fame is that I have a backyard full of garter snakes. So That's awesome. Which, which planes. Are they planes? Happy. Planes garter snakes. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Mom and um, babies. Yeah, and the populations, I've been here now 22 years, I think. The population's kind of been fluctuating. The past couple of years, it's been down a little bit because uh, they're, they're worm and slug eaters. So, But we've had some really, um, I don't want to say dry years, but the, you know, and kind of like Joey said, you know, and missed some spring rains and, and things like that. And I think population has been a little bit down. But uh, in May and April and May, usually I can go out in the yard any day and see one. Um, I have some that stick around the front and I have some that live in the back and they don't come around to the front. And, uh, you know, after looking at them enough, you can kind of, you get to kind of recognize certain individuals just based on their size, not necessarily their pattern or anything. But, uh, um, the fun part about that is I have some that live under my front steps. I have like some wooden steps, uh, that I built over an old con- set of concrete steps. And so there's a, there's a place under there for them to hibernate and they, they apparently do hibernate under there, 
but they come out of the wooden steps and they bask on my porch uh, in the spring. So April, I've got, you know, three or four radix uh, coiled up on my front porch basking in the afternoon sun. And uh, I, I've had a discussion with my mailman um, who was quite shocked one day to discover these things. And, you know, we had to talk about it. He's cool with it. He's, you know, kind of sidles by him a little bit. But you would be amazed how many times like an Amazon driver or a FedEx driver <laughs> will come up on the porch put a package in our bin, turn around and leave and never see the snake that's two feet away. Yeah. From them. Um, they just, they don't even see them. They're just sort of blind kind to of them. So. Well, you know, they don't expect it. On that same note, in my yard, I'm up to 15 species just in my yard. This year I got wow. my first yard garter. It's my, my first garter snake in my yard this year. So. <laughs> did, did you get a yard crawfish snake this year? Frog. Yeah. Frog. Sorry. I, I crawfish frog. To, yes. You did though. Yeah. Crawfish frog to my yard list. Like, wow. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So for all the years, for all the years that we've spent you and Mike and I, and whoever else would tag along, we would spend late nights in the rain with their heads out the window, listening for crawfish frogs and, and, it was just always ridiculous, and it's always in the middle of the week or something crazy, just rocket run, and you've got them in yeah. your yard this year. Yeah, I uh, it was it was <laughs> almost like a week after what I thought would have been peak movement, just walking my dog, and I heard the the little grunt, and I was like, uh, wait a minute, you know, I took ran the dog back inside, I grabbed the hip waders, I grabbed the flashlight, and I grabbed the net. And I just started following the sound, and I've got a little retention pond right next to me, uh, like, I don't know, maybe 30 yards away from me. And sure enough, I heard him echoing out of there. And I literally sat on the berm of that pond all night trying to figure out where he was. And I finally found him in a set of blackberry brambles growing right over the edge of the pond. He had tucked himself in there, and I managed to snap two or three pictures of him. But uh, what was super cool was since I had stalked him for hours that night, I got to learn kind of uh, how he evades detection. And uh, There's such a big frog, you could actually hear him coming up out of the water. There was like an audible pop when he came up out of the water. And I could hear him, uh, the second light would hit him, he would duck down. And then I'd hear him come up about eight feet to either side. And it was always within about 10 feet, but you'd hear the little boop as he would come up out of the water and I would start learning his movements and try to triangulate him where I thought he would be. So when I turned my light on, I had about 10, 15 seconds so I could snap a picture and I I got to nail that a couple times. So it was kind of cool just to sit and like stalk one animal for like four hours and just keep uh, all in the (laughs) hopes of getting just a glimpse of it and have it uh, actually work. Uh, it was just like one of the coolest nights I've had. I've, you know, I've had some awesome nights, but that's probably right up there at the top. It's just literally stalking one frog for four hours. They have to be the wariest frog I've ever encountered. Oh, uh, easily. Uh, they, they don't like sound. They don't like light. They don't like movement. <laughs> no. And that, that's a frog that only comes up about a third of the way through the state. doesn't really make it yeah, there's... much further north than maybe I-64. They come a little past I sixty four. They're they're recorded from Charleston yeah, too. There, there's like uh, little pockets well, of them yeah. kind of holding on through. Um, 
they might, they might not be doing as good as we think they're doing either too. Uh, even down here, it's hit or miss, uh, even in the, the best areas. Uh, in fact, my, my best area is now a, uh, a, uh, housing development. So, uh, I have to, uh, kind of relearn them all over again now. And, uh, they, they took quite a hammer in, in my, my little honey hole that I had. That's too bad. That's probably a species you'd like to come down and see, Joey. I'm sure. I have not seen them yet and I've been invited a few times, but, uh, there's always been something going on, but I would love to go down and take part in snoring thunder one of these I'll days i'll give you about an eight hour head heads up <laughs> yeah right <laughs> they're they're super cool and i have to say like i think all of us probably have a rhythm to the year except mike who doesn't know what continent he's going to be on but those of us who are kind of here we kind of have a rhythm to our life and what we're you know what we're targeting next so once you know the chorus frogs and and uh, Illinois chorus frogs are up and the ditch frogs are up then you know you can start looking forward to the next 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 and uh the throwing snoring thunder is definitely like a part of my spring rhythm. Yeah. The problem, uh, pro, you know, here we go again. Illinois is such a long state. So <laughs> it's a, it's for, for a guy like Joey, it's a big trip. It, it's not like a couple hour drive, you know, you, you've got uh, it's logistical. It's a logistical nightmare. Joey could potentially Amtrak it. We could pick him up in Carbondale. <laughs> he could sleep on the train. <laughs> get down here we herp like mad all night long drop him back off at carbondale and he oh, sleeps on his way home i i <laughs> i just figured it out <laughs> i love driving uh you know i i if i could i'd drive down there every weekend in the springtime in the ideal in the ideal world well we'll see if we can't get you down here and, and uh, work out work something out where we can get you some crawfish the thing about uh when you hit south of uh i would say south of 13 uh, yeah. is if we're having a, a fairly mild year, you can herp for 12 months out of the year uh, and with without missing a beat down here. It's, it's almost like moving, like getting into the south itself. But uh, when we have bad winters, they're they're really bad. So we that like I said, that Gulf moisture, you know, it, it, uh, it'll break you or make you. Um, the last few years we've had very mild winters and uh, I'm kind of, you kind of get kind of used to that. And then when you have a bad winter, like the, 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 I can't hurt blues hit you real hard. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've kind of lost that downtime and when I have to have it again, it, it just, it hurts. <laughs> if you want it you're bad just, enough, you'll spoiled. break the ice. Yeah. And flip you, can, rocks. you can literally you're go spoiled. and break the ice and flip a rock and find some salamanders down here. There is also there's there's one species up this far north that can keep it herping all year long. The mud puppies? Yes. Common mud puppies. In fact, they're probably easier to find in the wintertime. Because I, I think that they get they move closer to, to the shallows in the cold water in the wintertime and then they move down to the depths uh in the in the summertime. I think they like it cooler. That's a, that's a species down here that it's just not even on anybody's radar. I, I only know of a same here. few people that have ever found a mud puppy in Southern Illinois. I think Matt Ignafo might be the only person. I yes, really he know. has. And, of course he uh, did. Pope County, actually. <laughs> um, you want to talk about a county that is just rich in herptofauna and no one herps it. And plants um, everything. and everything. Like, it, it's uh, a lot of untouched uh, wilderness. 
But now you just said it to everybody. <laughs> well, there I go. <laughs> but uh, it's it's such it's such a oh, deep bro. wilderness that it's it's daunting to the uh, even even to some hardcore people. Like even myself, it, you know, uh, just to drive over there, uh, like say, you know, how long this, how wide the state is. You know, I'm in Southern Illinois where it's thin through the state and it's still an hour and a half drive for me, uh, just to reach the Pope County border. And then by the time you, you know, set out on foot into the wilderness areas that are thousands upon thousands of acres, it, it's a daunting task in some of these areas. Uh, Sounds it's, good it's though to me. Time. About the mud puppies, uh, are as far as up north goes, are they in the lakes or rivers, Joey? What's uh, what's going on? Well, with them? that's a good question. So there, very little was known about them. Uh, there's been some studies in recent years carried out by um, I want to say it's Shedd Aquarium in conjunction with Southern Illinois University. Uh, so they would have uh, some research, various researchers come out uh, and literally drill holes through the surface of the, uh, the ice. Uh, and set traps. So you're drilling through 12, 15 inches of ice, setting traps and going back and checking those traps throughout several weeks. Um, and you're, you're, you're not, you're talking like, like you're not talking about clean, pristine lakes here. You're talking about, you know, lakes that have, that have a history of uh, industrial uh, various industrial uses and things like that. Um, they turns out they're pretty common in, in a lot of these, a lot of these larger lakes I'm not really familiar with how common they are in more like uh, like lentic habitats, like uh, rivers and streams. I've never found one in, in a habitat like that. But um, at the very least, they're probably probably a lot more common than people think they are in some of the larger lakes. I know historically they were up in the Chain of Lakes area, up in, um, say that's Lake County. Um, I don't know their status up there now, but in Cook County, they're at least in some areas, they're pretty secure. Okay. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I know there are, there are some, uh, some of our Herper buddies who have found them um, close to Detroit, right on the big lake there, um, which is Lake Erie. Um, they're in Lake Michigan. And you, you got people fishing off the, yeah. you got people fishing off of Navy pier and they're fishing for, you know, I don't know what they fish for. I'm not a fisherman, but uh, they'll catch mud puppies uh, right off of Navy pier. Uh, oh, wow. and, uh, okay. a lot of people still think they're poisonous and they're, you know, they'll, they'll just cut the line and drop them to the water. They just, they're just scared of them. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you still see them with some regularity in the lake, in Lake Michigan itself. Okay. I'd like to see more. I've seen one. Uh, I helped, uh, uh, with a, with a survey in Indiana a number of years ago now. And, uh, thanks Andrew. And, uh, got to see one, uh, female under a rock with some eggs, which is pretty cool. Uh, so uh, I certainly like to see more of those. There's, they're interesting, almost as interesting, if not as interesting as Hellbender. So uh, it's one of those things that we never think about looking right. for because, you know, snakes and stuff. So. We can we can go near me at night, Mike. I know a couple of spots. I just haven't put the effort um, at night, though. They'll come out. Otherwise, it's flipping like Hellbenders in the water. Hmm. Okay, well, one uh, I want to I want to switch this around a, a little bit because we we've sort of danced around the the uh, the one place in Illinois that everybody likes to come to. Navy Pier, oh, Navy Pier, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it is now. I, I think uh, I've heard of this Navy place. Pier. 
Uh, Snake Road, of course, is the big uh, pilgrimage spot. And, uh, you know, uh, a month from now, it's it's going to be uh, going on. It's going to be, be a lot of people down there. Um, all of us have been down there at one time or another. And uh, it's it's the place where the cool herpers would never be seen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's why we see because, you there all uh, the time, right, Mike? There's so many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's one of those spots where you get so many people that come down here, and and, and the the media. Oh, they're um, in. I don't. Know, I don't want. I don't want to say they. <laughs> yeah, the media all, everywhere. There's articles, um, not even, not just within the state, but all, outside the state about the snake migration and all this stuff, and it just sort of fuels fuels that so for good or bad we have we have this place and lots of people like to go there including us yeah, for me uh you know it started with snakes <laughs> now it's uh my family reunion every year so <laughs> it's my favorite favorite time of the year all, all my friends show up to my backyard and get to hang out with them and you know every now and then we see a snake or two so <laughs> <laughs> well my my first time down there uh, was a number of years ago, and after researching all the different species, I was very ex- very excited to find a Shawnee King as my first uh, snake road snake. Come, That's a good and one. it was it was just inside the I guess the north gate. We just started, and there was a big three and a half or four foot Shawnee. I guess you'd call him Shawnee King, uh, Black King, and it was I was blown away. I'm like, I was not expecting this. I was expecting a, a cottonmouth or a rough green snake or a water snake or, but that was really, really cool. That is a good find for that area. And I, I have to say that of, of the ones I found over the years, most of them have been right on the North Northern edge there because there's some ag just to the North and some open fields and, and a levee up there, which they kind of like levee areas too. So, Caught them crossing uh, that levee road a few times. Yeah. So that's a that's a real good find for up there, and uh, man, I, that must have got your heart racing. And uh, I did. It was it was my first time there. It was in the first within the first five minutes. Uh, it was incredible, and that that's when I knew this was going to be a really special place to come for a long time. Ah, cool. Have you been back since then? Oh yeah, that was my first time when I was there. Your yeah, first time. Yeah, I've okay. been there a number of times. I I, th- I I met you there, although you probably don't remember it, and I don't blame you because I'm not uh, very memorable. But uh, I, I oh I I, I remember. Okay. I th- Sure. I think that wasn't. It was either 2014 or 2015, and Ju- and Jeremy, you were there too. Uh, Justin, I'd never met before. I know he wasn't there, but uh, I'll, I'll meet you there someday. But uh, sure. I remember meeting you two there. That and it, I, you know, I'd only read about you guys. I was like, wow, here's Jeremy and Mike, and it was really cool. And it was just, it was such a great experience overall. That is one of the things that happens down there is that you you either meet friends or you make friends or both. Yeah. Uh, so many of the people that I'm friends with in the herp community, that's the first place I ever met them. Um, which is kind of, which is kind of cool. Um, and, and that is part of the allure. Like, like Jeremy says, um, you know, he gets to meet his, his friends and his family, his family, his herping family, everybody, you know, like we're, uh, we'll have our, our buddy, oh, Steve absolutely. Marks come down, uh, from Canada. Mm-hmm. He'll bring a group of, of, uh, herpers down from Canada and, uh, we'll get to hang out with, uh, with them. Uh, and so it's, it's sort of, um, and we, and it's a, a good time is had by all. So we, we 
there's these friendships and relationships that uh, are renewed or even made connections made down there because it's it's a good place for people to meet. It's neutral ground. It's a protected area. Uh, the animals are all protected. It's a state natural a state. Uh, what is it called? Yes. Uh, research natural area. Um, so it's a it's a good place to meet and and thank thank goodness that we are allowed to even yeah. be there. Which I think is is very cool. Which is why everybody on this, uh, all all four of us, and many of our friends are very protective of that area because we realize that it is a privilege for us to be able to go down there and witness the, the snake migrations and all the other cool things going on down there uh, in in a an area that's really a protected uh, I don't think research a lot of area. People realize. Uh just how close that place has come to being closed before. And the reason it's open is uh, Herper's policing uh, other people that show up there and making sure that bad things aren't happening. We have an army yeah. of people taking care of that road. Uh, you know, there's, there's guardians of that place and they, they guard it with, with all their heart. Yeah, it's such a it's such a special place, and it's such a, a privilege for us to, to be able to, to to go down there. Why is it a special place? If you're, uh, I can't imagine anybody listening to the show isn't familiar with this, but just a, an overview of Snake Road. It's it's just a place uh, along something called the the Shawnee Escarpment, which is a uh, a, a, a large limestone edged ridge, which is in places a couple hundred feet high that runs north south. Uh, about five miles from the Mississippi. And it used to be uh, back when the glaciers were melting, it used to be the Eastern right. bank of the Mississippi. Uh, so we have this escarpment of limestone and then uh, it borders bottomland swamp. Uh, and then you have a, a road at the base of it. So you have this, this road, which serves as sort of a stage uh, because the animals uh, have to leave the bottomland swamps uh, and go up into the the limestone uh escarpments to to hibernate uh and, but also there's lots of animals that just live there so it's you know right on the edges of the road too so uh it's an opportunity to witness so many different types of herps including and of course we have our, our pit vipers and everybody likes uh the the cotton mouse and the, you know if you will uh that's the the star because there's so many cotton mouse down there and it's an opportunity for people to um, to see them up close and, and to uh, get to know those kinds of animals a little better. So it's kind of a thrilling thing if you've never done it before. Um, so that, that's obviously, but there's so many other creatures down there besides the, the snakes that cross the road. There's many other things, so all the frogs and toads and salamanders and turtles and th other things that we like so much. So it's just, a uh, you know, one of those places that uh, it attracts a lot of people. It gets a lot of media attention because, ooh, and that media likes to scare people about snakes and things. But uh, at the same time, um, it, it uh, and I'm kind of dominating the conversation here, but it does draw herpers from across, uh, not only the country, but it draws them from across the world. You know, I've had friends from, oh, like from Arizona and New Mexico. And I'm thinking, why, why do you want to come here? You guys have all these rattlesnakes out the wazoo. And and uh, they, it's they, different. they've made multiple trips. It's different. And, they see different things and uh, they have a good time. And, and I think uh, one of the other things is that is that typically uh, we all get together down there and uh, we, we hang out, um, meet each other on the road. Everybody goes to stays at a campground. So you go to the campground. So you have sit around a fire and you get to meet people you've never met. Uh, 
meet your old buddies and, and uh, make all these connections and things. So there's this a social element to snake road too, that uh, uh, I think is, is precious. It's precious to me. So I think I'm, I'm sure. Oh, Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think the accessibility factors is a big plus, especially if you're just getting into herping uh, because you know, otherwise you're, you're really doing a lot of hiking or road cruising. And this is a place you could just walk a few miles and you're, you're bound to see on a good day, you're bound to see a number of different species and individual animals. So I think if you're not, um, if you're not an experienced field herper, you don't really have to be, you just drive to this road, you park and you walk in the road and it's very accessible. Yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't take a, a lot of experience. You don't have to know, have special knowledge. You just have to wear hiking yeah, clothes. The amount of right? young children. And bring yes, water. Please bring water. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and wear, wear shoes that aren't Crocs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just the, yeah. the amount of young children I see uh, whose parents have brought them there because, you know, little Johnny loves creepy crawlies. And you know what uh stopping and talking if you're if you know herps and you see a kid on that road stop and talk to them you're going to be amazed at what these uh you know four-year-olds five-year-olds are talking shop with me you know throwing out latin names and everything it's 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 amazing and their minds just get blown when you can you know talk back to them because they're they're yearning for someone who you know knows this stuff and can talk to them about it and you know they, they have their parents or they have whatever you know bombastic show is on animal planet at the moment but their their faces just light up it's it's one of the fun the most fun thing i do is just talk to people down there and uh just never take never uh if you're walking the road don't miss a chance to spread some of that to some of the younger generation out there the takeaway i have is that there's a lot of young guys out there that don't have anybody to even take them someplace or show them how to do it or what books to get or any, or put the rock back in any of it. And so it's important if you see a, a young mind out there that is curious to, to offer that hand and, and try to help them out, get them started and get them started the right way. And not even just the young kids, even uh, the older people. I, I meet so many people who are walking that road because they're afraid of snakes and they know that there's going to be a lot of people there and they know that they're going to be safe if they encounter a snake. Sure. Uh, just last year, I met a lady who was just almost tiptoeing down the road and I you know, stopped and chatted with her and she was telling me how scared she was of snakes. So I walked with her for the, the rest of the day and just took time. And as we met each snake, you know, kind of talked to her about what, what that snake was doing, why it's doing what it's doing and uh, about how through about half the day she's running up the uh running up the side of the road checking the cliffs and come back and uh you know she's spreading that to all her friends now and it's always this trickle effect that happens and the, the more people who are uh not scared uh the less there are out there killing them too yeah that's a good point and um you know the media keeps people coming down there that they have no clue um or they're, they're interested or they're, they're maybe they're, maybe they want a thrill or something. And so they, uh, it, it ends up being something different from what they thought it was. Yeah, going you're, to be. you're not going you know. to be 
absolutely tripping over cotton mouths like uh, the media <laughs> thinks. You know, people come down here and they're like, we've been here for three days and we've only seen 10 snakes. I'm like, oh, you're doing pretty good. Uh, they're like, <laughs> you know, uh, there's going to be the day out of in the spring and the day in the fall where you can get, you know, 200 snakes. But every other day down there, it's it's just a leisurely stroll down a nice little road and you're going to see something. Might not even be a snake. Uh, it's one of the most biologically diverse sure. places in the United States of America. I think it's uh, I think it's number three in the United States in biological diversity. Um, I think Everglades and the Smoky Mountains are one and two. I can't I can't remember what the oh yeah there 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 are people that are there for flowers or even mushrooms especially birds. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that are not just herpers there. It's just a cool place. Not not to mention just Even, beautiful uh, uh, ichthyology and mammalogy too. Ninety five percent of all vertebrate life in Illinois can be found at, at Liberty Pine Hills. It's it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing place. Uh, and you get to you can spend a nice warm a- October afternoon walking down the road and just kind of letting it, you know. You just have to be open to whatever you might see, whether it's a bald eagle overhead or fall warblers or. I think, I think that if, if you're a herper and you go to snake road with the intention of finding herps and you don't find any, you, you, you still never fail because you're just going to see something. You're going to experience something that's going to be incredible. Like you said, whether it's a bird or or anything else it's just a it's just a, a storied place it's just an iconic place to be so just being there and just you know in the moment in the place it's it's just there's nothing else like it yeah and so i, I hope we continue to to be able to do this you know it's obviously a, it's a sensitive area I, I, you know in the past there's been uh you know the one that always comes to mind was the the bus load of volleyball players <laughs> Please tell me about this. <laughs> Who showed up? I have no idea why they were there. <laughs> I should have asked somebody. There was a busload of some college volleyball players who showed up there to to watch. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, well, all, all are all are welcome, but boy, um, <laughs> that's just kind of what happens sometimes. But for the most part, it's people who are interest, interested in nature, and not people who are looking to to get thrilled by a. Ooh, a poisonous yeah, my, snake. My favorite day down there was uh, a Jeep convention had all pulled into Pine Hills thinking they could drive down this road. And they, they had been driving mm. through the Shawnee. I don't think it was one of the Southern Illinois groups either. It was, they were, they had been on the road for a few days. And of course, you know, it's gated off, so they couldn't go any further. So they were all drinking beer and uh, having a grand old time and decided they're going to walk down the road until they saw the first cottonmouth, which was about a tenth of a mile down the road and I heard screaming and yelling and just a mass exodus uh, is the only way you can describe it where you just kind of stand still and let the whole crowd pass you as you're walking towards the snake. There's, there was literally about a hundred people uh, making a hasty exit from the road. And I was like, what's going on? They're like, there's snakes. <laughs> I was like, really awesome. You know, I'm going the other way, but yeah. uh, on that side, it does Sometimes you know the uh, the odd codmouth does keep some uh, some people off the road that probably shouldn't be there too. I like going down there in a the week. It's very quiet. Uh, it's always the weekends. Yeah, that are the weekends really crowded, are not for so herbs. They're for people. People, uh, if, if you come down, just yeah. 
just know yeah. that uh, on the weekends it will be busy. You will see more people than snakes usually, but and watch, uh, especially behind groups. Uh, snakes aren't dumb. Uh, they wait for the groups to go by and then pass the road. So look behind the big groups and usually see stuff move. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget. There was some the folks down there. Um, uh, I, I don't recall what there was a small group, seven or eight people. And they were, uh, looking for various, at various things. And, um, there's a nice big five foot black rat snake stretched out in a bush over the swamp next to the road and they were all looking down and they all walked right past it. It was amazing. It was like, it's amazing. You know, uh, just the, the, the fact that they, they were so intent on what, what might be on the ground in front of them that they completely missed this beautiful snake just, you know, displayed perfectly for them to, to look at, you know, at, at, at eye level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that happens sometimes too. But anyway, I, 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 there are many other places to go down there in Southern Illinois. There are also good places to, to visit too. There's just a lot going on down there. Uh, obviously we have, uh, other pit vipers available down there too. We have, uh, timber rattlesnakes and we have copperheads. Uh, but we also, we also have another, um, rattlesnake, the Massasauga, which is in not very good not shape. Very good. No, they're not doing well. And I got to see a few this year with Dr. Dreslick. It was a privilege, um, all, th- but, all three of us. But the uh, situation got a chance to. Yeah, I think we all. Except Mike, I think he was in Europe. Yeah, um, yeah, that's an animal that um, has been in decline ever since you know metal pl- metal plows broke the prairie, and uh, even more so once the wet prairie started getting drained. And uh, um, it's just kind of sad that there was no set aside for them and. You know, they're sort of pushed off into little pockets of habitat that are left. And the populations that we have in Illinois are extremely small and vulnerable. In some cases, just a few animals are left in the populations. And um, in the, you know, in the past 30, 40 years, they've just kind of dropped off uh, uh, precipitously. They just have disappeared from even uh, up in the Chicago area, the Chicago suburbs. There were places where they could still be found. Uh, but they seem to be extirpated from up there too. Uh, maybe you can tell me otherwise. No, I, I mean, conservation efforts were too little too late um, <clears throat> up, up in uh, Cook County and, and in Lake County and in Will County, you know, we, the same, the same things that wiped them out across Illinois, wiped them out in the Chicago area. It was agriculture. And then when you, all the little pockets out of them remaining were just taken out manually, you know, just, uh, yeah, people just kind of just wanton slaughter of, of, of all the snakes. And there were a, some populations up in the Chicago area that persisted until like the early two thousands. Uh, so relatively recently, but uh, they ultimately there was, they, they were threatened and they were collected um, for as part of the, of an SSP to kind of get them to get numbers robust enough to release them, but that never happened. And it's sort of up in the air at this point, as far as like, what's going to happen. I mean, if you ask me, I cannot imagine anybody releasing Massasaugas back into Cook County or Lake County, just for, you know, political reasons and, and public backlash and things like that. I don't think whatever happened. We talked about it when we were Jeremy and I, and, and Dr. Dresley talked about it a little bit um, a few months ago, but 
it's sort of up in the, it's sort of a precarious situation with them in Illinois. Like I said, there's little pockets left. Um, it's to be seen what will happen long-term. And even with the, the, the best population left, uh, I won't even say the name of the place. If you know, you know, there's a multi-jurisdictional management and, you know, what one, uh, organization that's trying to do is stepping on the foot of another organization that's trying to do something and uh there's a lot going against them uh not just not just in management but uh just in habitat degradation uh invasive species coming in and uh you know taking over areas uh lots of these areas are only set aside uh as uh habitat now because of pheasant hunting too um, the only reason some of these little prairies still exist is because they can release some pheasants in November and shoot them. And you know, un- until then, you know, all the massasaugas can use it until November. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of this multi-jurisdictional nightmare that occurs when trying to manage species too. Yeah. And I can remember um, back in the day um, at, at, at the strong population site, I'm going back probably 20 years or so there was, you know, efforts from the local politicians to put a floating casino, the plonk of floating casino right where this, where the snakes were living. Right. Um, And that took a lot of work to get that stopped because that was, you know, percolating through the legislature and thank goodness (laughs) enough people uh, made enough noise to get that stopped. Cause that, you know, again, um, you're, (laughs) You're dealing with land ma- management issues, uh, you know, because the the like you say the the pheasants are going to take precedence, but uh, you know, floating casinos also are um, uh, a threat uh, to to these animals as well. It's just it's just as big a threat as a, a an invasive species. So, yeah, I, I I wish we could have a whatever it is the same that ducks and deer and everybody do, and have so you buy a hunting license but then you get a reptile stamp and that money is earmarked for conservation of land and people to manage it but i just don't see that happening but if it could then we could have land relegated the way pheasants do that aren't even native and that would be wonderful but i'm just dreaming now so lost but uh if if you're in illinois you know uh you might not hunt but buy a duck stamp you know that you know, absolutely. I, water, yeah, waterfowl, yeah. waterfowl stamp. Uh, that goes directly to wetland managements. You know, you might not hunt, but hunting, hunting money goes to upkeeping lands. There, there's little things you can do like that. Uh, volunteering, uh, just to come out and, you know, tear garlic mustard out of the ground and stuff like that. You know, we don't think about plants destroying habitats too, but, uh, with my company, we fight that battle every day and we're seeing huge changes in uh, areas that uh, are really herb famous and just the, the amount of effort we put into, you know, fixing the, the natural area around them is leading to a lot of things. And that in turn uh, starts that conversation again about protecting the animals there too. Yeah. Your, your company is a, basically a habitat restoration we're, we're like general forestry, but we, we like to think of ourselves more as uh, ecologists, not foresters. You know, there's that, that kind of negative connotation of the word forester. 
And there's really like a new generation of forester out there that is an ecologist first and foremost. And we like to think that's our wheelhouse. Uh, natural areas restoration is a, a big thing with us. We do a lot of state and federal contract work. I think you guys need a, like a uniform, like a Robin. We, we actually, we actually, uh, Feather in your cap and all that. That would be cool. uh, Lime, like uh, super neon yellow shirts with our logos and stuff on them. And it's really cool to see uh, randomly the whole crew show up one day wearing those before they go out to murder some autumn olive. Autumn olive, that's the big, uh, that's the big uh, invasive species in in the state from top to bottom. I mean, uh, up in Chicago, the buckthorn is decimating him. Yeah. Decimating oh, amphibian populations. Yeah, different it, It's problem. got a chemical it releases into the water that can kill amphibians. Uh, down here, it's uh, bush honeysuckle, autumn olive. Uh, I mean, we have it all down here, but uh, stilt grass and Japanese chaffflower and all these invasives that are choking out waterways and changing the actual f- physical structure of the forest, uh, shading out the herbaceous growth and, there's so much that goes into it that you'd have to you'd have to dedicate like a whole week uh, just to talk about all the, the things that happen with uh, yep. you know land management. Well, I you know said on the show before, there's lots of people out there fighting really hard to restore and protect, and most people have no idea how many many people are are involved in this work and how hard it is, and, and you know. It's a thankless I mean, job. I'm in the business so. down here, and I still learn about a new group about once a month that's doing, you know, fighting the fight. There's so many out there, and there's so many uh, chances to volunteer at these groups and go out and help them too. Yeah, you can do something cool like yeah, a bird count. Uh, down here, we have uh, the fro- the uh, the spring frog count. Uh, the Cash River Wetland Center uh, will give you a map with uh, designated points. Uh, and it tells you what days you're supposed to go there. And they've been doing this for over 20 years. So they have 20, 20, I oh, think really? it's 25 years of data on what frog species are calling on what days, when in the cash river system down here. That's cool. Are they associated uh, yeah, with frog watch? I think they are now. I think they had been doing okay. it independently before, but now they're part of the frog watch, I believe. Okay. And on the topic, I'd like to uh, shout out the Calling Frog Survey, which uh, is headed up by the Peggy Notabart Nature Center, the Peggy Notabart Nature Center up in uh, in downtown Chicago. So they run the Chicago region frog counts. Uh, so if, if if anybody is listening to this is from the Chicago area and would like to take part in a volunteer uh, activity um, related to frogs, the Calling Frog Survey is an excellent program. Okay, and that's from the the Peggy Notabart Museum. Okay, that's the museum up in uh, um, right uh, the downtown Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln Park, Park. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's right on okay. Lakeshore, right? Yep. It's right by the zoo. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. That's where the Chicago Herp Society meets or used to. Still does. Still does. Still does. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And and that's what was the name of that group again? The call uh, the what Calling Frog Survey. Calling Frog Survey. Okay. So are they affiliated with the Frog Watch too? Or are they I don't believe so. Okay. Okay. But it's still a fun thing to get people it's out. It's probably there. very similar to that. Yeah. I got the chance to uh do uh participate in a frog watch survey, uh which I've talked about on the show, uh uh with uh, uh Gina Lloyd, who's been on the show. Uh uh down in Louisiana, uh near near New Orleans. It was a lot of fun just to go out 
and, um, you know, go through the, you know, the steps of stopping and then listening and then recording what frogs you heard and how many you think you heard and that kind of thing. It's just fun. It's just an excuse to, to get out in the, uh, in the swamp at night or the woods at night. So that's absolutely yeah, I'm sure kids love that kind of thing. So I kind of want to wrap this up um, on a high note uh, because we always end up talking about the, the terrible things that are doing terrible things to the things we love. But uh, so um, what, what uh, let's start, uh, I'll go start with you, Jeremy. What, uh, what's your favorite herping activity in, in Illinois? What do you like? <laughs> Sorry, to do Thunder, man. <laughs> I mean, there's just nothing <laughs> like just physically draining yourself for like a week, freezing getting soaked from head to toe just to see a frog and have just to, just see, to see a crawfish uh, frog. I, I never thought I would do that just to see a frog. You know, I'm, I'm driving around toads every night, just, you know, driving down the streets, to, you know, to go everywhere. So, you know, toads are just not even, they're just part of the road at this point. But uh, <laughs> I just remember the, the first phone call I got from my wife, uh, she had called me and said, I think I found one of those frogs you've been looking for. And uh, I was like, now you probably saw a leopard frog. She's like, well, it's the biggest leopard frog I ever saw. I was like, where are you at? I drove over there. And uh, ever since then, I've been I've been hooked. Honest, honestly, there's just nothing better in my book than uh, that one week in who knows what month it happens in. Just it's that one week, that mm, one week, February or March that uh, just kind of yep. all hell breaks loose in Southern Illinois. Uh, you can't drive anywhere without finding a hundred herps crossing the road. There's nothing yeah. like it. Yeah. I like it too. And I also just like, it. it's good excuse to come down and hang out. So yeah. How about you, Joey? Oh, uh, well, that's a good question. I think something I really enjoy doing is, um, looking for the more cryptic species that people don't really know about or don't really care about. Um, one of my more recent um, endeavors is looking for the Graham's crayfish snake in new locations or maybe in locations they haven't been seen in in a very long time. And, uh, and we do that as a group, you know, some of us herpers up in the area, we do that. Uh, we've had some success. Uh, it's very fulfilling because it's something that, uh, again, it kind of, we've been able to bring light to some of these species that people just don't know about and aren't very aware of. Um, but just as much as I enjoy doing that, I love looking for garter snakes and toads with my daughter because, uh, you know, she's, she's the next in line. So uh, she really enjoys doing it. And it brings me a lot of joy to, to introduce her to some of these things too. So seeing her smile and, and, you know, and catching snakes by herself. And I've actually started a little life list for her and I don't have a, I don't, oh, cool. I don't have a life list for myself. I'd, I'd have to start all over and I don't even know where to begin, but for her, I've started a little life list. So she's got a good respectable number of snakes uh, on her list. Uh, most recently it was a, a nice Fox snake. So that kind of stuff is what I really enjoy doing the most. Cool. How old your daughter? She's six. Six. Perfect. Yeah. All right. And she doesn't mind getting out in, in the rain and, um, uh, to you a, know, wet weather and things. <laughs> to a degree. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you buy them, you know, cool little boots, and she know. likes the mud. I don't know. I don't know yeah. if she likes the rain. We'll we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good, Justin. What about you? I think what gets me out of the depths of winter, where I'm almost beaten down by it, is when the frogs start to call the toads, frogs and toads calling, 
and I'll just go out every night in the rain and the cold and stay out until I can't take it because it's like the best medicine I can get. So for me, that's that's the best. That's the thing I need. I mean, snakes are my top target usually, but it's the amphibians that get me out of winter and uh, bring me back. So get your year started. Yeah, get my year started. Get make me feel like winter's over. Make me make me happy and feel like I can go out be looking for something because it's almost like a like you're you need that. I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. Well, I have to say, uh, from for me, I think it's that it's those rare warm sunny afternoons in october when i'm walking along the snake road maybe there's people around but hopefully there's not too many people around i'm just kind of walking along and it doesn't even matter if i find anything the sun feels good on my back the, the, the smell of tannins from all the falling leaves is in my nose and maybe there's a woodpecker going off somewhere and there's a bald eagle next you know flying over and you know, that kind of thing, that kind of experience uh, in terms of herping Illinois, I, I like that probably the best is the opportunity to get out. And, and I don't even know what I'm going to find. And it really doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. I know it's going to be, it's going to be cool, whatever it is. So could be just a little ribbon snake. Who knows? Could be an ugly water snake. <laughs> Still cool. We got a few <laughs> of those. <laughs> Joey, we, we need to get you down and let you hold the shovel and then. That's all I'll say about it, but we need to get you down there and let you hold the show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to hold the show. Yeah, special. Okay. We have to get now we have to explain what the shovel yeah, is. I'm lost. Yeah, when usually usually um we get together down in um down the Snake Road area. We everybody kinda camps at the same place and then there's a fire and people come over and we all hang out at the fire and most of us know each other, but not everybody is known to everybody else. So what we, what we just started doing was, is, uh, we use the talking stick technique. Um, and then we, uh, give somebody the talking stick and let them say a little bit about who they are, where they're from, why they're down there, what their favorite thing is, that kind of thing. You know, you get two or three minutes to, to, to do that. And then you hand off the talking stick to the next person. And then, we didn't have a good talking stick one year and then Justin had brought a shovel down. <laughs> so now Justin just brings a shovel every year and that's the talking stick. And then if you open your mouth and you don't have that, if you're not holding the talking stick, people are going to, you'll be, you'll be famous. Gonna, yeah. You're going to get uh, shut down. <laughs> so it, yeah, it's kind of funny too. It way people are like, shut up. <laughs> you don't like, have the yeah, stick. Like a, like a little yeah. uh, religious Thing that happens if you interrupt, man. Oof. Yeah, like Lord yeah. of Flies. Didn't <laughs> but it's kind of fun. It gets it does give people a, a chance to to sort of get to know each other and it kind of strengthens some bonds of friendship and things sure. like that. So it's just one of those things. So a lot of times you're sitting right across from someone you know from Facebook until they say their name. You're like, oh wait a minute, I do know this person. You know, it's it's so yeah. it's so cool. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, if any of you guys ever want to make your way up to Northern Illinois, let me know in advance and I'd be happy to, to have, uh, to, to, to show you around and hopefully see some cool herps. I need to know more about Dolomite Prairies. So come on out. I do too. Check you up on that. I do too. I want to see this now. Let, come on up. Well, thanks guys. Thanks for coming on. Uh, give me uh, 90 minutes of your time. I appreciate that. And, um, 
uh, talking about uh, where we live and what we like in the place we live. So uh, I, we could probably do this for like three or four hours because there's other places in the state oh, we, so we haven't talked about, like sand prairies and, uh, you know, along the, along the Mississippi and all these different uh, cool things we haven't really talked about. But uh, Yeah, and if you, any of you guys ever want to come to a sand prairie, hit me up. Absolutely. That's right. You're you're the Sand Prairie King over there. Uh, okay. Well, thanks, guys, and uh, once again, appreciate your coming on. Thanks, the show. Mike. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Hey there, it's me again. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, and you know, really, we barely scratched the surface when it comes to herps and herping in the land of Lincoln. I want to congratulate Jeremy, who added yet another herp to his yard list since we recorded this—a tiger salamander which is pretty cool. Also, I got to thinking about Eastern Garter Snakes uh, at Snake Road, and I went back and checked my records. Uh, I've only found seven garter snakes there since 1998, so so maybe not a common snake there, uh, at least for me. Maybe I should hurt better. Thanks for listening, everyone. Well, that's it for episode 70. I want to say thanks again to the three J's, uh, Jeremy Schumacher, Justin Michaels, and Joey Capitale for coming on the show and talking with me about Illinois and other cool things. And I never want to sign off without thanking all of the So Much Pingle patrons for supporting the show. Much appreciated. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. So much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to somuchpingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.